When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Today's guest is Ramsey Fawaz, the Romnes Professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Published by New York University Press in 2016, The New Mutants, Superheroes and the Radical Imagination of American Comics is his first book. In 2022, Ramsey published Queer Forms, for which he has already been interviewed by Lily Gorin on the uh, companion uh, podcast channel, New Books in Political Science. And I recommend all listeners to, um, after you've listened to this interview, to go listen to Ramsey's conversation with Lily Gorin there. Um, He's also the co-editor of Keywords for Comics Studies with Deborah Whaley and Shelley Streeby with New York University Press. Ramsey's recently published article in Social Text is titled Legions of Superheroes, Diversity, Multiplicity, and Collective Action Against Genocide in a Superhero Comic Book, which I hope we can touch on in this conversation. And Ramsey also co-wrote the introduction to a special issue of American Literature with Derek Scott. Um, the, The topic of that special issue was Queer About Comics. Welcome to the podcast, Ramsey. Thank you so much for having me. This is a delight. In an interview you did with Allison Halsall and Jonathan Warren, you talked about the experience of reading these 1970s comics about mutant outcasts, the X-Men, as a, quote, gay Lebanese boy in suburban Orange County, California in the 1990s, end quote. How do you reflect on that attachment? Uh, In some ways, uh, that has become my origin story. Over the years that I've written about comics, I've spoken quite a bit about uh, this particular nexus of experiences that happened in my early teenage years. I was an immigrant to the United States when I was around six years old. We we fled, you know, war-torn Lebanon to come to the U.S. And we had friends who were in Orange County, California. You can imagine this was a very dramatic shift in location from kind of an international um, urban hub. Beirut was this kind of famous cosmopolitan urban location to this very suburban, white-dominated area of the country. Um, And, you know, I often talk about the fact that as a very flamboyantly gay, intellectual young kid... Um, I received an extraordinary education here and felt very, like, nurtured in a lot of ways, but also experienced really terrible bullying. And I remember discovering comics when I was 13 by accident at a store. I remember seeing um, the 35th anniversary issue of the X-Men and being really dazzled by this issue. And I asked my mother to take me to a comic book store uh, so that I could buy the companion to it, like the next issue, right? And I was mind boggled by this place. Like comic book stores have a long history of being perceived of as being unfriendly to women and queer people, but that wasn't my experience at all. Like I actually felt completely welcomed by the store owners. 
Um, I ended up knowing them for many, many years. The store still exists near my neighborhood and has expanded. And I found in that comic book such a deep sense of identification with characters that were nothing like me. And I often say that that was really like, it was the origin of my superpower, which was the ability to cross-identify. Like the ability to be able to reach out of my own experience and find an, an analogy in the experience of other marginalized people where like we didn't have a one-to-one -one relationship, but I could look at the X-Men and say, oh, there's something about them that is like me, but not exactly me. And that was really a transformative moment. And I think in some ways, my entire history of scholarship is about studying that ability, the ability of readers and viewers to kind of exit imaginatively their own like subjectivity and go into the life world of somebody else. And so, yeah, so in many ways, I look back at that really as this formative moment of cross-identification, which shaped the way I relate to popular culture generally. And I also see this as um, a thread through your work in, in your conversation with Lily Gorin and in this book that yeah. you're interested in shifting from like the declarative to the subjunctive, like not only what these comics are saying or what purposes they were designed for, but what purposes they can be put towards, you know, how we can adopt or um, sort of bring out a new um, possibility from those those texts. I absolutely I think oh, another way of putting that is that I'm deeply concerned with interpretation and and interpretive practices. I'm really concerned with like what what does a specific weird idiosyncratic reader or viewer bring to the table when they watch Barbie, you know, or they read a comic book like the X-Men or they read a novel um like Toni Morrison's Beloved. Like what happens when a reader or viewer brings the really specific, weird, intricate, snowflake-like, unique world of their psyche, of their psychology, of their temperament, and then they do something with that text. Um, I think that we have a history of talking about cultural objects like as though they carry a singular meaning. Like that movie must have meant X thing, and the meaning comes from the mind of the creator, as though the creator even always knew what they were doing. You know, often people don't know exactly what it is that they are conveying. They think they have a story they're telling you, and they have no idea what you're going to do with it in your imagination. So I think a lot of my work has become very, very deeply invested in studying, like, what is that magical transformative thing that happens when somebody decides to interpret the thing that they're, the cultural object that they're encountering. So they make meaning of it. That's like a meaning-making practice. The reality is that we're all going to make meaning of something differently. And that's what makes every object of culture, every movie, every comic book, every comic book character kind of infinitely open to having different interpretations of it. Um, and that's like really where genuine diversity comes from. Like the idea that people are different from each other is not simply reducible to race, class, gender, and sexuality. It's also about the way that we make meaning of the world differently. We come up with different interpretations and I wanna understand that at a very granular level because I actually think that's the place where the possibility for communion 
across difference is 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 made visible. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I love that privileging of the goodness of something instead of yeah. the isness of it. That's that's excellent. Mm-hmm. In an essay in PMLA titled uh, "A Queer Sequence: Comics as a Disruptive Medium," you outline three affordances of reading comics and how critically engaging with comics can help us to expand what we think is possible to to continue that that thread. What are those three affordances? So um, I have a history in my work of kind of listing various aspects of comics and sequential art that can do really, really interesting things in the world. And in that piece, the three that I named, as I said, first of all, comic books really demand us to think very closely about multiplicity. Comics as a medium is multiplicious. It is about the proliferation or the additive sequential growth of images on a page, right? So it's, it's like, of course, there are comic strips that are a single panel, but generally there's another one and another one and another one. Comics unfold in sequence. And they also contain so many different elements. Any comic strip or comic book or graphic narrative or graphic novel tends to have hundreds, if not thousands of different components. There are the different panels on the page. There are the characters in each panel. There's the coloring, the texture of the paper, right? The, 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 the inking, like the lettering, like so many different aspects are sitting on the page. That's true of every media, by the way, right? Like that's true of cinema, that's true of literature. It's just that comics accentuate that reality. When you're watching a movie, the movie doesn't try to show you that it was edited. It doesn't usually show you the seams, right? That th- We would then call that like an experimental or avant-garde movie, you know, which, which exists, of course, in spades. But comic books are always laying out all the different components that make them up because they're literally drawn on the page in front of you. So comics force us to deal with diversity. Like it forces us to think about all the different components that went into making it. And and that's like really important aspect of the medium. Another point that I make is that comics do something really extraordinary, which is that they give concrete shape to abstract identities, ideas, or feeling states. So I give the example in that essay of um, the feeling of recognizing what racism is, right? That moment when you discover in the world that racism exists, what does that do to your brain? In Stuck Rubber Baby, this very, very, very famous graphic novel, Howard Cruz, a brilliant writer and artist, he chooses to depict this moment when a white gay male character in his graphic novel feels a deep identification with one of his black friends over the question of racism. And he draws this man's brain exploding into a bunch of puzzle pieces, basically. Right. And so what's amazing is that he gives concrete shape in drawn form to a really difficult to grasp feeling or concept, 
So part of what comics do is they visualize experiences that we have in surprising and unexpected ways. They create visual metaphors for what it's like to be a person in the world. And so they visually translate complex feelings in ways that are immediately intuitively graspable for us. That's really important. Like if you want to pursue political projects of anti-racism, anti-sexism, you know, anti-transphobia, like all of this stuff, you need to be able to translate the experiences of being those people to others. And comics give concrete shape to that. And the third thing I say is that because of comic sequential nature, because they're always unfolding in kind of indefinite rhythms, they kind of interrupt the tendency in the study of literature to want to identify strict canons or famous authors or creators to say like, oh, there's a canon of black literature, or there's a canon of gay literature or women's literature. Comics are kind of doing everything in lots of different ways. And they resist trying to limit them into a single canon or set of texts. And so they force us to read really widely across many genres, superhero, memoir and autobiography, science fiction, and there's a kind of playful open-endedness to them that I think demands our attention and our creativity. And it also allows, I think this is something you touch on, is uh, the the way sequentiality in comics are, can help us rethink desire or the non-teleology. Yeah. Because if you think, if, if part of what we desire when we read or watch narrative is some kind of closure, what we want is like the plot to resolve or something to end, that happens in comics. Plots resolve, plots end, but then there's always the impulse to produce more after, right? I mean, contemporary television and cinema is now in some sense following comics because those mediums are becoming more and more serial. It's rare that something ends definitively. There's usually a sequel, another season. And in some sense, comics kind of, um, they have a drive towards open-ended possibility of the continual production of storytelling. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I, I think one illustration of that would be um, it, death is never final in comics. Yeah. Know? Those are constantly being that's so true. Thoughts are being reworked and reimagined, you know. Yeah. Um to to return to the new mutants, you focus in on this hinge moment when superhero comics began to shift from uh, a rigid ideological conservatism toward what you call the quote comic book cosmopolitics of a great expression. Yeah, yeah. There are a range of ways this gets expressed. Uh, and sort of analyzed in your book, including the scaling up from the city and the nation up to the world. Can you talk to us about mm -hmm. book cosmopolitics? Yeah, in the book, I make a distinction uh, between an earlier period in the 1930s and 40s, which is kind of the period of the invention of the superhero, in which there was a great focus on superheroes as kind of... Um, urban Samaritans, like do-gooders who protected the poor, the impoverished, the working classes from exploitative forces, usually organized crime and, and bosses, right? Like um, capitalists who are greedy, etc. Um, the scholar Bradford Wright calls the superheroes of this period uh, super new dealers, 
Like they were kind of like sort of liberal progressive, but not necessarily very radical. And what we get is these superpowered beings that are doing good for a local community or a national community. Um, and this was a really, there were also some really extraordinary, powerful, weird superheroes in this period. But generally speaking, the focus was on the city and the nation as things that needed to be protected from outside forces and from internal criminal forces. What I point out in the book is that a shift happens dramatically in the late 50s and early 60s, where superhero comic books are kind of completely reinvented. And the superhero becomes this figure that is traveling the entire globe and the cosmos, like linking up with like aliens, mutants, freaks, monsters of all different kind of species and in different galaxies. There's a massive uh, expansion of the imaginative universe of superhero comic books. And this makes complete sense because of the fact that we are talking about the medium and the genre entering the post-World War II period in which a global conflict led people to start to realize that they are part of an entire world of different kinds of people. Americans had to think of themselves now as part of a global world order. And superhero comic books began to think critically about like, well, what does democratic action, what does the idea of doing good for people mean in a global world? And they start to imaginatively think about superheroes as exceeding the borders of the nation. So superheroes become confused about their allegiances in the 60s. Are they supposed to represent the American government or are they supposed to represent people? broadly speaking, around the, the world? Are they limiting their doing good to the human species? Or are they supposed to think about doing good everywhere? And I think this is part of what makes uh, comic books in this period cosmopolitan, as I say in the book, right? Cosmopolitanism describes a political project that is about mutually transformative cross-cultural exchange. It is a description of different kinds of people encountering each other and being open to the risk of being radically transformed by that encounter. And that's scary. That is, in some ways is the most radical form of democratic possibility. It might be giving up some of the things that you hold dear because you discover that there might be better or different ways of living in the world. And I think what superhero comic books became interested in after the 60s is like, what does it look like to be forever changed by encountering people that are not like you? And that's really what superheroes begin to do in this period. They are less interested in stopping crime and they are more interested in meeting people who are weirdos, right? And like seeing what happens. The Fantastic Four is basically a story about a little, like seemingly nuclear white family that becomes monsters and freaks by being irradiated and getting all these superpowers. And then they spend the next 60 years traveling the galaxies, meeting all these different kinds of alien people. And, and that's an amazing story of the family becoming a cosmopolitan like ambassador to the universe. And, and that's what interested me when I first started writing the book. Yeah, so I think that leads really well into the, uh, discussing the second chapter, which looks at, at the Fantastic Four. Uh, a comic book 
about the scientist Reed Richards, his fiance Sue Storm, the hip teenager Johnny Storm, and the hypermasculine Ben Grimm. They get bombarded with cosmic radiation during a space flight, transformed into stretchy, fiery, invisible, and rocky bodies, and then band together as a kind of superpowered family. But um, I, I really enjoyed and learned a lot from your analysis of the ways that that comic by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby is actually critiquing some of the um, heteronormative um, uh, post-war, Cold War expectations of masculinity and femininity. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, the Fantastic Four is very much the heart of the book, even though the book spends a lot of time with the X-Men, who we're all very familiar with as like the first mutant superheroes. I argue that the template for that model of the superhero as a mutant or species outcast really starts with the Fantastic Four. And why do I say that? Well, because the Fantastic Four initially looked on the outside to be like a perfect white nuclear family. You had Sue Storm and Reed Richards, who were like 30-something um, men and women living in the kind of suburban America. That they were like they were partners, boyfriend, girlfriend. It was her her brother, right? Uh, Johnny Storm, and their best friend Ben Grimm. From the outside, they looked like parents with two kids, right? But they were actually a chosen family. Um, Johnny and Sue are orphans. They end up connecting with Ben and um, and Reed Richards kind of by accident. And the four of them end up going out into outer space because of Reed Richards' fantasy of beating the Russians to uh, to kind of send a rocket ship, right, to, uh, into outer space. So initially, the four of them are being drawn to this hyper-masculine scientific project of Cold War dominance over Russia. Well, the minute that they enter outer space, they get, quote unquote, bombarded by cosmic rays. And these rays transform all of them into these like freakish, monstrous beings. They gain all of these different superpowers and they essentially then become at odds with the nation that they were supposedly going to support because they no longer fit the traditional model of like what it means to be a human in this world. What intrigued me when I was studying that series was that their superpowers are also deeply related to ideas about gender in the post-war period. So like the idea that women should become invisible, that they should disappear, is attached to this woman who's always struggling to make her voice heard among these three men, right? The idea that teenage sexuality is like being on fire, right? It's about being overwhelmed by puberty and desire gets materialized in this kid who literally like goes like like is a flame but what's interesting is that i point out that almost every one of the characters defies the gender norms that attach to them sue storm initially appears invisible but then gains the ability to manipulate an invisible force shield that actually can wrap itself around people it can turn into different material shapes she actually uses her invisibility to become more visible on the page you know ben grimm seems like this very hyper-masculine fighter pilot who literally becomes hard, right? Like he becomes a living rock. But in fact, he's like a big baby who's super emotional, who's always crying. And the harder his exterior gets, the softer he becomes inside. So each one of the characters kind of defies 
the gendered assumptions that come to attach to them, and they become very much a queer family. Kind of as they negotiate their, their relationship to each other and to these newfound superpowers, more and more, the superhero team kind of become these space travelers. They kind of are like, why don't we just like go out into the world and meet different kinds of people? And I often point out that like in the first hundred issues of that series, like its first six, seven years, Stanley and Jack Kirby introduced at least one new character in every single issue, including one of the first Black superheroes, of course, Black Panther, these characters called the Inhumans, who are a hidden race of mutants living underneath the, the, earth, the surface of the Earth. And so what happens is that that comic book becomes this space for introducing hundreds of new imaginative characters to the Marvel Universe, and it becomes all about the idea of diversity, of encountering, like it basically, let me put it this way. The comic book basically says, you know what the American suburban family should do? It should like get out of the suburbs and go out into the world and never come back. Like go out and start adventuring and go meet other people, like open the family up to all of these connections. And I call it a queer family because the superhero team ends up allowing lots of different people to join it. The Fantastic Four changes its membership numerous times over the years because they're like an unstable molecule that keeps letting in new people. And I find that just totally magical and amazing. That, that's great. And you inspired me to go back and read some of those um, Lee and Kirby stories. And, and one, you know, the marriage issue, which um, is famously, they don't show the, 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 the wedding at all. Um, it, it, it constantly gets interrupted by villains trying to sabotage them. I wonder what you would make of that, that choice to kind of displace the wedding from the wedding issue. I think that choice is precisely about Stanley and Jack Kirby's kind of queer vision for what superhero comic books could be. I think they were less interested in the consummation of heterosexual romance, and they were really much more interested in the instability of what it means to be a human trying to connect to other humans. So even though Reed Richards and um, Sue Storm end up getting married, like their marriage is troubled by so many other phenomena. She's kind of in love with Prince Namor and Namor is always trying to break the two of them up. Her desires kind of run wild. She's really interested in being an independent agent and they constantly run up against that reality that they often want different things. And I think it makes sense that that issue displaced the wedding itself because the issue was less about displaying their marriage vows and their union, and it was more about displaying how their union actually brings together hundreds of other characters that they've met who are deeply invested in the Fantastic Four as a social unit, right, as an alternative family. And so what really gets displayed in that issue is the fact that they are a queer chosen family more than the fact that these two are getting married within that relationship. So so it's kind of like heterosexual romance becomes one of many different kinds of relationships, no more nor less important than the others. And that's a pretty radical idea, I think, in the 60s for mainstream comic books to be making. That's awesome. That, that's an awesome reading. Um, 
You also discussed the counterpublics of the letters pages in the Fantastic Four. So it's towards the back of each issue, right? There would be um, fans writing in with questions, sometimes technical questions about you know, where um, Reed Richards went to college or why this um, gizmo was used in this issue instead of that one. Um, you describe it uh, as a kind of 1960s uh, message board or Reddit venue. Um, what was so enabling about this form of counterpublic? You know, I think the emergence of letters pages in comics was one of the most transformative and powerful creative decisions, like in any medium after World War II. Because think about it, today we have a huge ability to communicate through the internet about the media that we watch, about the way, what we think about TV shows, movies, but we still have very minimal ability to reach directly to artists. You can try to DM somebody who wrote a TV show that you liked, you know, on Instagram. You can try to find different, you can tweet at them, but they are overwhelmed by the number of audience members that want to talk to them. So it's very difficult to get direct access to the writers and artists and creators whose work you're invested in. The letters pages were a really ordinary, everyday way that fans could just write letters to the creators of their favorite comic books in the 60s and after and say, here's what I loved about this issue, or why don't you do this, or why don't you change this character this way? Now, what was beautiful is that this created a direct contact with creators, and many of those writers like often visited or lived in places like New York City. They could literally go directly to the Marvel offices and drop their letter off or like knock at the door and see if Stanley was there, which is pretty amazing. And now, of course, the letters were curated because they would get hundreds of letters and the creators would pick a handful of them. But what's amazing is that they, they put the letters in dialogue with each other. So even though many of the letters were about fun, technical things, like you said, like where did Reed Richards go to college, right? An imaginative fictional question. Many of them had political content. Many of the readers would ask, like, why is it that you're presenting the male I mean, the, the lead female character in the Fantastic Four is so weak. Like, haven't you heard of the women's movement? There's somebody who's right to say, like, haven't you heard of the women's movement? Like, women are actually way more powerful than you think, etc. And the creators would respond in a dialogic way. They would go back and forth with the readers, and they would allow the readers to respond to each other. So part of what I point out is as a result of this space, at the end of every issue, Readers got to have long-term dialogues with each other that unfolded over time where they could debate issues of collective concern, like the question of anti-communist politics in Marvel Comics, or like I said, the question of gender equality in these comics became all things that, that readers debated, and it ends up influencing the actual content of comic books. So like as a result of a debate between readers, Stanley and Jack Kirby stop uh, stop espousing anti-communist rhetoric in their comics. Readers basically write in and they're like, listen, you've made this amazing argument that the Marvel Universe is all about difference. It's all about the fact that people live in different ways. So like, how can you be anti-communist if this is just one way of life among many? Why don't you just let communists be? 
right? And other readers wrote in and said, but, but communism is evil, like you should be against it. And as a result of this debate, enough people convinced Stanley and Jack Kirby that they should stop kind of spewing anti-communist rhetoric that they do. Like they just don't ever talk about it again in future issues. And I think that's an amazing kind of democratic form of engagement in popular culture that should be like, we should pay attention to it because it provides a really powerful model for public discourse and debate that often like, even though we have more venues online to articulate our thoughts, we also aren't often in dialogue with each other. We're just basically like shouting each other down. And I love that about the letters pages. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, let, let's backtrack a little bit to the first chapter uh, in which you look at the Justice League of America, which was a kind of novel approach to superhero comics. It's a team of comics. And the superheroes in that comic moved far beyond the borders of the nation. What do, what do the J JLA comics of the 1950s and 1960s have to say about Cold War era thinking about national identity, international justice, collective solidarity. Maybe you can give us a specific example from the comics. Well, I think the evolution of the Justice Society of America, which was invented in the late 30s, early 40s, to what we what would come to be the Justice League, really tell in the in the late 50s, tells you everything you need to know about the big shift in the way comic book creators thought about superhuman power. And, and, and kind of super heroic action. In the late 30s, early 40s, what, what we would now think called DC Comics, right, Detective Comics, invented the Justice Society of America, which was really a team-up book that would bring together all these individual superheroes, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, the Green Lantern, um, in order to fight organized crime in American cities. And again, it goes back to that thing I said earlier, where like you have this very local and national focused vision that like most of these superheroes somehow related to the American government. They were serving the interests of um, criminal justice in the United States. That team is completely revamped and reinvented in the 60s as an international and intergalactic, like, like, like a force of Samaritans. It was like a group of people who were thinking beyond the limits of the nation. The Justice League ends up traveling to outer space. They travel to molecular space. Like that one episode, they shrink down. And like long before Ant-Man, you know, and Quantumania, they, they would like go into like the quantum realm and like discover all these other civilizations. And they're continually questioning their relationship to the U.S. government. So the Justice League would go on these adventures where they're trying to protect the, the globe from like alien menaces. But in the process of doing it, they also meet other species that live differently. And they think very critically, like, are we living the best way that we could? Like, what if we rethought the way that we live? And so part of what was fascinating about that comic book is it was very much thinking in the logic of the United Nations. It was thinking the way that people were thinking after World War II about like, what does global international solidarity look like in a complex and diverse world? And the Justice League is very much um, an extension of that logic into the realm of fantasy. Like, what does it mean to use our political powers to work together 
to protect the globe, but to also allow people to flourish, like, on that globe. And I think the Justice League is very much like, that was kind of the beginning of the of the moment when comics start thinking in the terms of global and international politics. And I guess the composition of the team is is quite different as well. You have an alien, um, an alien member. You have an an Amazonian member. So the composition of the team is yeah. I mean, many of them. I mean, John Johns, the Martian Manhunter, is fully an alien to the to 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 Earth. Right? He's just trying to figure out how humans live. He's a shapeshifter, and he works for the U.S. government. But essentially, he's a mole. Right. Like and when I say that, I don't mean it in a bad way. Like he's infiltrated the U.S. government, not to subvert it, but because he wants to understand how American democracy works. You know, Superman is literally an alien from another planet and he's continually questioning his allegiance to the United States. Like he's like, well, I'm supposed to serve all people around the globe, like with my powers, not just people in the U.S. Um, You know, Batman is in many ways much more in allegiance with his city Gotham than he is with the nation. Um, And he's often at odds with the police. And like you said, Wonder Woman is an Amazonian princess from a completely different culture. Like almost none of them really fit into the logic of the, uh, of, of um, like national belonging. I think it's only, is it Wally West? Like the, the original flash is like the only person who's like a police officer, but even then he's at odds with his own profession because he's a vigilante technically as a superhero. So what's interesting about that team is that none of them could really fit into the logics of national belonging. And they kind of inaugurate this, what Marvel comics will kind of take and run with it in a new, in like, like beyond. Um, This idea that superheroes could be something other than emblems of national power. The fourth chapter looks at the space opera comics of the 1960s and 1970s what you call the messianic melodrama that includes figures like Warlock and Captain Marvel. You, you talk about uh, the figure of the Silver Surfer who makes these um, sort of long speeches about the humanity's position within the cosmos. Can you talk to us a little bit about these um, sort of interstellar dramas of the period? Yeah, these interstellar dramas are actually really interesting now because a lot of the characters from them are now being incorporated into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So like Adam Warlock is now incorporated into the new Guardians of the Galaxy. There's a whole there's a whole set of movies about Captain Marvel uh, in her female incarnation, even though the original character was male. Part of what I look at in this period in the 70s is this moment where the exuberant kind of political possibilities of traveling the cosmos, meeting other kinds of people that we see in the Fantastic Four, the Avengers and other comics of the 60s begins to run up against the really seemingly intractable stubborn existence of xenophobia in the United States. Like a lot of comic book creators in the 70s in the wake of Vietnam, in the wake of the civil, the rise and kind of like the flattening of the civil rights movement, begin to kind of be shocked and disgusted with how stubborn American racism is and American sexism and and all of these things, by the way, which we're reckoning with again today. And what you see is both a readership and um, a set of creators 
who are processing their feelings of disappointment and frustration with the failures of American liberal democracy through these characters who I call um, like messianic figures. They're almost like Christ-like figures, these powerful, but sort of also effeminate male superheroes. And when I say effeminate, I mean that they're gentle and loving as well as super powered and strong. And they are continually decrying or lamenting the failures of humanity. So you get these kind of intergalactic stories where these, these figures are basically like often crying on the page and saying like, why are people like this? Why are they so hateful? You know, why is this happening? And I think this is a really powerful affective moment in the history of superheroes where the superhero is being represented not as a figure only of power, but is also a feeling, a figure that registers the failure of the human connectivity and, and community. I think it is very telling that it is in this moment that the, the superhero team that becomes the most popular team in the history of comics re-emerges, and that is the X-Men, right? Like out of this, the messianic melodrama emerges the second incarnation of the X-Men in the 70s. This group of like mutant freak superheroes who are all outcasts, who band together and travel the cosmos um, kind of in search of community. And so as an alternative to this failure of human character to deal with diversity, comic books offer a solution, which is chosen community. What if you, as marginalized people, created your own world, creating your own sense of ethics? And that's what the X-Men are. They say, like, actually, we want to create a world that is more welcoming to human difference. And we're going to do that together as a kind of chosen family. So I, I love kind of like that superhero comic books in this period pose a problem and offer its solution imaginatively in these stories. I, I want to get into the X-Men, um, which I have a deep uh, and longstanding relationship as well. But it strikes me that the way you're talking about the messianic melodrama, that isn't captured in the movies. Uh, I think people who have only seen the Captain Marvel movie or the warlock character would be a little bit surprised that these are characters that express deep feeling, that that they're crying on the page, maybe a little bit, because he's um, depicted as um, sort of seeking maternal care in that I don't know if you've seen that movie yet. Mm, I have not seen that movie yet. Yeah, so um, why do you think that's an aspect that's maybe not translating in these adaptations? That we're That's a great question. I mean, I think now there's a huge gap in time between those original comic books and today. Um, and I have a feeling that, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe already imagines itself as kind of doing this thing in which it's promoting diversity and tolerance, et cetera. I think that there is probably a kind of forgetting, a collective forgetting that, that that idea about tolerance and acceptance and understanding ran through a lot of those original characters. I think that, that a lot of people don't know those original texts and they haven't seen them. So they're just kind of picking and choosing how to incorporate these people because they're they're popular. So I think there's probably kind of a mis, there's like a misreading of the origins of those characters. It's like a lost in translation across all this time. 
that, that's interesting. And that's got me rethinking those adaptations. Um, you, you talk about the X-Men, um, in particular, the characters of Aurora Monroe, codenamed Storm and Jean Grey uh, Phoenix. Um, what did the X-Men comics of the late 1970s um, have to say about themes of female liberation in the context of these space operas? You know, I, one thing I, I really underscore in the book is I don't think we can overestimate the power that that um, Chris Claremont and John Byrne's version of the X-Men in the 70s had on the imaginative universe of Americans and of American popular culture. When Claremont took over that series, he imagined that the X-Men basically was the site for the transformation of the superhero from a figure of masculine power to like a, a figure of female and queer liberatory possibility. He imagines that the X-Men have all essentially lost their capacity to connect to any of the dominant forms of being in American culture. Like, because they are mutants, they are genetic outcasts, and so they are different from human beings on so many different levels. They cannot claim traditional masculinity, the privileges of whiteness, you know, the privileges of class, of like, like, they have certain class privilege because... Professor Xavier has all this money and, and land, et cetera. But like so many of the privileges of what it means to be a quote unquote normal American are denied them. And he then says, well, who would be the emblem of all of that? It would be women. Like women would represent that position of outcastness. So long before characters like Wolverine became some of the most popular characters in the comic book, this was a, a comic book series that was about Storm, about Jean Grey, about Rogue, about Shadowcat, you know, Kitty Pride. They were all about these powerful young women who were all exploring their identities, changing their sense of self and their relationship to gender at the same time that they were learning to use these unbelievable powers. And one of the things I talk about um, in the book is that this was coupled, this narrative refocusing on women characters and their relationship, by the way, to powerful but gentle and loving men. Like part of what the series shows you is a variety of men like Nightcrawler and Colossus, who are also like very loving, deeply invested in friendship with these women and camaraderie and companionship. Like the series is really an extended meditation on friendship across difference. It's all about the idea that marginalized people will have to ultimately figure out ways to identify with each other, even when they don't share the same race, the same gender, the same temperament. Like, that's a necessary requirement for their survival in this complex and violent world. And this was coupled in the series with a complete reinvention of the visual format of the comic book. It becomes incredibly psychedelic, when women exercise their powers, it's often like an, a lava lamp explosion across the page. You know, when Jean Grey uses her telekinesis, like rainbow-colored explosions like fly across the page. When Storm uses her powers to rearrange weather patterns, you know, like there is this flowing explosive visuality to these movements on the page. And what I argue is that Claremont whether intentional or not, was borrowing from kind of the explosive disco cultures 
of gay and feminist liberation, this very psychedelic, hippie, visual culture. And he was drawing it into the world of comic books to describe people whose personalities and bodies were changing. Right, and I think that that is so miraculous. It's why the X Men is so compelling to so many people across generations. Yeah, and I, I think that's another thing that that people who have only seen the adaptations would be a bit surprised by how much. Um, the adaptations make no sense to me. Yeah, I mean, how much space? I, and I'm grateful. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. no, I'm grateful for the fact that the ad the film adaptations helped inaugurate this kind of era of telling superhero stories in different genres. But but the but the X-Men movies basically conceive of the X-Men as a militarized operation. They're like dressed in black leather. They're always kind of like engaged in these military-like operations led by Xavier. It's so much a focus on advanced technology, on the wealth of Xavier. The original comic books were like they looked like they were all disco divas. They were basically like a group of like queer dance performers. I mean, they had insane costumes. Storm looks like Diana Ross. There's a kind of explosive queer feminist energy that, as I've mentioned, is very psychedelic and comes out of the psychedelic 60s and 70s. The closest analogy I have to it is for Ragnarok. When I saw that movie, it kind of blew my mind because it was the first time I ever saw a superhero movie at that level duplicating the visual culture of the 60s and 70s Marvel comics. It's so visually exuberant. It's kind of high comedy while also being dramatic. And it's so visually explosive and psychedelic and colorful. And I wish they had done a treatment of the X-Men like that. Like, if they do reincorporate the X-Men into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, what they should be doing is replicating that explosive visual style. It should be, like, ridiculous in a way. It should be almost like camp. And and I think, like, that's what captures that visual moment in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, that, that's great. Um, you, you also talk about the Dark Phoenix saga and the birth of Venom uh, as two long story arcs deep social anxieties about gender, sexuality, and class. You inspired me to go back and read the Dark Phoenix Saga. And just to touch on what you were just saying, um, one of the things that struck me about it is both, both the patience in these long arcs that Claremont and Byrne had, but also how much space is given to um, the characters' different perspectives on whatever's happening. There's like pages where you get Nightcrawler reflecting on his religiosity in the context of the phoenix phenomenon and then you have cyclops thinking about his his personal relationship with the character um can you talk to us a little bit about those um two arcs and uh, how you interpret them absolutely i mean in me in the same way that i talk about the messianic melodrama in the 70s as kind of registering a deep sadness and frustration with the failure of liberal democratic politics to live out on its promise of inclusion. Similarly, in the 80s, what I call the narrative of demonic possession, these stories about superheroes who become possessed by evil forces and who start to use their powers uh, for, uh, for villainous ends. 
those stories in the 80s, I think, register something a little bit different, which is a deep sadness and lament that the radicalism of the 60s and 70s was co-opted by capitalism in many ways. That feminism, gay liberation, the civil rights movement, the hippie counterculture became so easily swallowed up within uh, neoliberal capitalism, like the, the search for profits and the corporate motive. I think what you see is a moment in which demonic possession becomes a kind of metaphor for the idea that the superhero itself is becoming co-opted by the forces of greed. And so what you see in Spider-Man's The Venom Saga and The Phoenix Saga, these two, two of the most heroic characters in the history of Marvel Comics, Jean Grey, this kind of proto-feminist superheroine, and Spider-Man, you know, everyone's favorite neighborhood superhero, who is such a good Samaritan, becoming consumed by demonic forces and not, and, and not knowing how to control themselves. And it makes sense that the other characters around them get so much space in these stories, because what we see is comic book creators giving you insight into how all of these people's friends are making sense of their transformation. Like Jean Grey becomes this cosmic figure. She gets possessed by the Phoenix Force, this kind of cosmic being that balances the universe's kind of balance of good and evil, but she doesn't know how to control it. And it consumes her and she ends up eating, like she ends up consuming a star in another galaxy and killing billions of people on another planet. And her, her friends have to square this reality with the person they knew, who is this incredibly kind, generous, loving person. And similarly, Spider-Man's group of intimate friends are kind of like shocked as they see him become more self-absorbed, narcissistic, greedy, as he is consumed by the venom, the, the, this, this suit that's an alien being that consumes him. And so part of what I do is I explore how these, these kind of possession stories become a way for comic book creators to process the corporatization of the superhero itself as a character, which was originally this imaginative, like, creative figure for thinking about doing good in the world that is becoming more and more corporate by the late 80s. This leads us to chapter seven, which looks at the uh, comic book, The New Mutants, which in part gives your book its title. Additionally, your title refers to Leslie Fielder's description of America. Fiedler, yeah, famous literature, literary theorist. Right, uh, and I was, I was just reading that essay um, in which he's describing um, beatniks, hipsters um, yeah. in the 60s as, as new mutants, as, as new mutants, um, yeah. youths who have given up on an idea of futurity. Um, and masculinity. I mean, it's actually a very fascinating and also deeply offensive speech he's a literary theorist who's saying there's something really really amazing about this youth rebellion that's happening that's producing all this new culture but also isn't it a problem that all of these young people are basically giving up on traditional masculinity on heterosexuality and he calls them new mutants and part of what i say is like but there was a generation of people who thought that that was a good thing right right and like and like that's what superhero comic books were like maybe that would be a good thing if that happened. Right, right. Um, the the comic um, 
was a it was a departure in a number of ways um, from the Uncanny X Men and other superhero team books. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, the New Mutants and maybe how it can be read as a, an indirect response to to um, Fielder's uh, essays or thoughts about uh, those mutant youth? The New Mutants is hands down my favorite comic book of all time, comic book series. I think it's a work of genius. And even though Chris Claremont is usually credited for his extraordinary long run on the Uncanny X-Men, which brought us all the characters that we know, Storm, Rogue, Nightcrawler, I actually think he is at the height of his powers writing The New Mutants. I think he really figures out what his political vision is in the mid-80s. The New Mutants tells the story of the younger generation of X-Men. Technically, the X-Men were all young, right? The original team is like, is 16 to 18 years old. But by the 80s, the idea is basically like the, the characters we met in the 70s are now in their 20s. And now we have a new group of teenagers who are new kinds of outcasts who are brought together at the Xavier Institute to learn about their mutant powers. But the world has changed. And this group of mutants now come from completely different circumstances. One of them is a, is a refugee from Vietnam as a result of the Vietnam War. One of them is an orphan from a Native American reservation um, uh, from, from the Cheyenne tribe, right? One of them is from South America. Another is from a working class coal mining family. So suddenly what happens is that the team accentuates notions of dispossession. Like we start seeing people who've been dispossessed of their land, of their country, of their uh, access to upward mobility. We start to see a much deeper reckoning in the comic book with this idea that to be a mutant is not only to be different, it is potentially to be dispossessed of your belonging um, to any kind of community. So I think one of the most powerful ways that it does that is that the series becomes less interested in race, the way that Uncanny X-Men was obsessed with race in, in, in some ways. It becomes more interested in the concept of indigeneity. Like this, it centralizes a female Native American character, I think, in order to say, what if we talked about difference in terms of belonging and originary belonging to a place. Indigeneity is about belonging to place, right? Central to native and indigenous identity is the idea of belonging to a place and then being dispossessed of it as a result of genocide, white supremacy, et cetera. By centralizing an indigenous character, uh, Danny Moonstar, I think this series basically says, what if we thought of mutation in terms of indigenous belonging. Where do we belong if we've been dispossessed of everything that we are? If you've been dispossessed of your humanity because you are a, a mutant, where do you belong? And I love the comic book says, you have to invent the belonging. There is no ready-made place for you. You have to invent it. So this group of teenagers who are often very much at odds initially, always fighting, always disagreeing, they come to find home with each other and they create analogies between their differences. They begin to say, like, actually, I'm not exactly like you, but I'm more like you than I thought. Like, right, like a working class character like Cannonball says, you know, 
to his, to, um, to, um, uh, why am I forgetting her name? Uh, to his co colleague, Shan Khoi Man, who is a Vietnamese refugee. He's basically saying to her, like, I'm not a refugee, but I'm working class. And I've seen all of the members of my family, like, die. Like, because of, like, coal mining lung, lung disease. I know what it means to be dispossessed of my heritage. So we're not the same, but we're more alike than we think. And that is an amazing thing that the comic book does, is it imagines imperfect analogies between different forms of dispossession. And so it levels up what the X-Men can do in terms of dealing with the politics of difference. And I love that about the series. I think it's so smart in that way. Entrustment is a key word in that chapter. Mm -hmm. Can you gloss that term for us? And yeah, entrustment is a term that comes from political theory. And I'm specifically drawing it from the work of a, of a feminist political theorist named Linda Zerilli, who I reference all over my entire oeuvre work. I'm very attached to her. She writes in her book, Feminism and the Abyss of Freedom, about a feminist politics that is not about equality. It's not about the idea that women are the same with each other or the same to men, but about an acknowledgement of the fact that women are different from each other and must find points of commonality with each other in the doing of politics. So equality in that sense is not sameness. It's about women looking at each other and saying, where do we find points of connection with each other? despite our differences. Like what happened when women got together to engage in feminist politics in the 70s is they discovered that none of them are alike, but they had to argue as though they were alike. And so by the time of the 1980s, feminist politics had started to crumble because people began to say, there is no one thing that ties all women together. It's not like women are all identical. Um, so entrustment is a political concept that says we are not bound together by the fact that we are women. We are bound together by the fact that we have decided to work together towards political goals that are shared. So once we decide to do that, we have to find some way of trusting each other. And the way we do that is by talking constantly about our differences. Who are you? Who am I? Why do we relate? Why, how would we find a point of articulation? And I argue that the New Mutants was obsessed with entrustment. It said, if historically, superheroes were bound together by a desire to do good, that no longer works. We have a group of teenagers who have no idea what their ethics are or what kind of good they want to do in the world because they've only been treated like garbage their whole life. So what this team ends up doing is they end up creating their own ethics. They kind of decide together what they think doing good in the world is. And they build an entrustment on the basis of that idea. So the comic book is a completely contingent. It's superheroes without the hero part. Like, they're just superhuman. And they're like, what should we do with our powers? And what they come to decide is that if they can help other people in the world not feel dispossessed, that that's something that they want to do together. But that is not an assumption. That is something they decide to do together. And that's how they build entrustment in that series. And I think that's such an amazing model for democratic politics today, that we shouldn't be waiting for other people to tell us what to believe. 
we should be coming up with our ethics together. I, I think this will link together entrustment and what you were saying about indigeneity. Um, this arc uh, called the Demon Bear Saga, um, which includes um, commentary by uh, by a fan, Larry Martyr, on Cheyenne cosmology and Marvel Comics. Um, what was the Demon Bear Saga, and how did this fan, this reader, Martyr, identify, quote, uh, I'm quoting your book, mimetic acts of sympathetic ritual uh, as hmm. the Marvel gospel. You know, the Demon Bear Saga, I think, is one of the most extraordinary stories ever told in the history of Marvel Comics, and it doesn't get enough discussion. Um, it's drawn by this fine artist uh, and painted by this fine artist named David Sienkiewicz. It was one of the first times in the history of comics that a fine artist, who's like a painter, was asked to basically, like, visualize an entire story. It's basically the story of of this central character, Danny Moonstar, who feels deeply at odds uh, with her mutant community. She has joined this new group of X-Men, the New Mutants, but she feels really torn about that because her primary allegiance is to the Cheyenne people, to her tribe. And she feels that she has had to abandon them to be with mutant kind. And so she's really torn about that. She is haunted by a demon who's like not just a dream, but a literal spectral figure that is ravaging. It's like tearing its way through time and space, destroying her history. Like there's this bear that comes to her in her dreams, but it's trying to kill her. And the demon bear saga tells the story of the moment when that bear comes to life, it like exits her psyche. It becomes a living thing and it almost kills her. And all of her teammates end up having to go into the universe of this demon bear, which is essentially, uh, it's it's actually crazy what they do in this story. It's amazing. They all end up in the Midwestern plains before the era of genocide and colonialism. So the New Mutants, this group of like total weirdos, right? A Vietnamese refugee, a coal miner's son, like the son of a South America, of like a, Brazilian corporate mogul, like, you know, like all of these characters end up in the American Midwest in the era before native genocide. And they are about to be killed by this demon bear that ends up actually being this figural representation of the rage and trauma of native peoples at their own massacre. It's it's really unbelievable. Like the, the comic book stages a literal encounter between all of these people who are refugees, who have been dispossessed of all these things with like the originary form of dispossession in the stealing of the lands of native and indigenous people. And when they ultimately defeat this demon bear, it turns out that the demon bear is Danny Moonstar's parents having transformed into this being. So she thought she was an orphan, but she isn't. And what she has to reckon with is that as a young native person, does she want to carry this trauma forever the way her parents did? It transformed them into this demon bear. Does she want that? And she basically rejects it and says, I want to be both native and mutant and a woman, you know, and like a youth. I want to be all these things at once. It's basically an intersectional indigenous theory of belonging, like visualized on the page. 
And I think it's one of the most daring things that was ever done in Marvel. It's written also by a white man. So what's amazing about this fan response is that there's this guy named Larry Martyr who basically writes into Chris Claremont and is like, I'm fascinated with what you're doing with Native culture. Here is a bunch of information about the Cheyenne uh, cosmology, about how Cheyenne people actually think. He's like, I'm assuming you don't know much about Native people and that you're just kind of writing about it from your own experience. And one of the elements of the Cheyenne cosmology is this idea of scaling outward to the cosmos to being able to imagine the interconnectivity of all beings. Like, it's almost Buddhist in a sense. And Martyr circles this and says, that's what Marvel Comics has always been about, hasn't it? And he's basically telling Chris Claremont, the thing that you're doing in the Demon Bear Saga is a description, not only of native and indigenous ways of thinking, but of also the philosophy of Marvel Comics. Maybe Marvel Comics is more of an indigenous philosophy than people have thought. That's like mic drop. That's like a mind-boggling idea. And I don't think that people in Marvel Comics ever ran with that concept, right? Like, I just think, like, it's this one fan who recognizes this. In an unpublished letter, by the way, to Chris Claremont, it's located in Claremont's papers at Columbia University that this guy wrote to him. Maybe we could talk about uh, Sienkiewicz's uh, art in that in that uh, arc mm-hmm. it's, it sort of mixes um surrealism there's some like very um hyper realist um almost photographic uh, images in 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 those issues how, how do you see the art contributing to to some of the themes you're talking about stinkavich has a style that i can only describe as like a slash Right, everything he draws or paints is like a is like an erratic brushstroke across a page, so that every body and image is like a slash across the page. It's like jagged, it's fractured and fragmented. So when he first showed you the demon bear, the demon bear looks like a massive black void on the page. It's this screaming literal bear that is slashing its claws through time and space and like literally rending the fabric of time. It's an astounding image of trauma, of intergenerational trauma. The idea that this bear is cutting through time in order to try and kill like youth, right? Like this group of mutant youth. So the beauty of Sienkiewicz's style is that he visualizes subjectivity, like bodies, as though they're always in flux. Like they're always on the verge of like shattering into a thousand pieces. And so part of the power of his art was that he gave concrete form to the idea that identity is multiple, fluctuating, transforming, and never, it's always contingent, right? It can, it can be like rearranged in a million different ways. There's a later storyline um, called Soul War that he also draws and paints in which the New Mutants encounter the psychology of a deeply traumatized schizophrenic young mutant um, who will later be called Legion. And when they enter his mind, it's the mind is war-torn Beirut. It's like very similar to this idea in the Demon Bear Saga where we go back to the site of native and indigenous trauma of the Midwestern Plains. 
And what's amazing is that when they go into a psyche, it's basically represented as a fractured pane of glass. Like it's a shattered series of, of pieces of glass. And part of what Sienkiewicz is trying to describe is the idea that human identity is multiple. It's always breaking apart and rearranging itself. And so he gives us kind of a visual theory of what it means to be a mutant, which is to always be dispossessed of a self. Like you're never gonna be one thing, you're always gonna be many things. And Sienkiewicz is kind of training you as a viewer to live with that, to sit with that complexity and say, I can survive this, I can withstand it. I'd like to talk to guests about um, their, their writing process, how they approach academic style. Um, do you have um, techniques or practices um, in how you approach writing academic prose? You know, I believe in the idea of meeting readers halfway. I often say in other interviews, I am deeply frustrated and exhausted with the tendency of popular reviewers of academic texts to constantly comment on how jargon-laden they are. Every arena in the world has its own jargon. The nonprofit world, the music world, people who work in film and cinema and entertainment, people who work in corporate settings, they all have their own language for talking about the things that they do. Academics are no different. What we call jargon is a set of terms, words, concepts, or ideas that we are deploying to explain different things that are happening in the world. We produce jargon in order to account for complexity. The world is really complicated and it's multiple and it's fragmented and it's changing. We need language that can explain that. When people complain about jargon, they usually mean it seemed too complicated to me as a reader. I didn't understand it which is fine. You don't have to understand everything. The job of the academic is to try to explain very complicated phenomena. So in my writing process, what I really try to do is to meet readers halfway. I'm basically saying to them, I'm not gonna dumb down my language. I'm not gonna remove all of these complicated terms, but I'm gonna explain them to you as clearly and articulately as possible so that you know what I'm saying and why I'm saying it. So when I look at a phenomenon like the way in which superhero comic books began to engage in democratic political thinking, that's what my whole book is about. How was it that this popular entertainment, superhero comic books that people thought was throwaway fantasy for kids became one of the most powerful places for thinking through American democracy in the late 20th century? Like that's what my book is about. That's a very complicated phenomenon to explain. I do tons of research to understand why this came to be, how it unfolded, and then I figure out a way to, to lead a reader step-by-step step through the process by which I figure that out, right? So like I, I, I create a concept like comic book cosmopolitics to explain this phenomenon, and then I break that concept down. I'm like, what do I mean by cosmopolitics? I mean this kind of cross-cultural exchange. How did it appear in these comic books? Through the invention of all these fantastical characters who are meeting each other and negotiating their differences. So for me, it's like building a puzzle, but I am, the puzzle is clear to me in my mind as the researcher, and then I need to undo the puzzle and then redo it for the reader. It's like I'm reverse engineering my thought process. 
So my practice is basically to build the entire picture and then to break it down into building blocks and to lead the reader along the way to how I came to my own conclusions. That's kind of the process that I work through. So, so is that like an outline? You start with an outline or free write? I always start with an outline. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Okay. I always outline an entire chapter. I can never free write. And you like I'm looking outline. at something and I'm saying, I pretty much do, yeah. Because I don't want to look at a blank page on my computer. I want to have a sense of where I'm going and the structure and how I'm leading the reader there, right? So if I am thinking, let's think about what we talked about earlier. Okay, in my research, I have noticed that there is a group of comic books in the 70s that are all about these messianic, Christ-like figures. And then there's another group of comics that are about these superhero teams like the X-Men. But all of those comics, regardless of those two styles, are set in outer space. What's that about? Right? So I figure out an explanation for why that's happening. I think this is all about the struggle over the failures of liberal democracy in the 70s and about the desire to go into outer space to find solutions to those problems. So I've come to my conclusions. That's what I'm going to argue. So I have to then explain to the reader what are these genres? What is the space opera? Who are the characters that inhabit it? Why does it seem to be about liberal democracy and its failures? What are some of the visual solutions comic books offer? So I figure all that stuff out. And then I think, what is the order of thought that I need to lead the reader through for them to be convinced of my argument? Like my job is to convince you that my interpretation is valuable and meaningful. It's not the only interpretation. You could go reread all those comics and come up with a completely different interpretation. But my job is to convince you of mine. So what I do in the outline is I say, what are the building blocks I need to build or put together for the reader to follow my train of thought? And, and then I kind of like, I kind of map it out from there. See, I, I, I tried outlining, but it, it ends up um, differing so um, so wildly from the outline, often because yeah, I misidentified what interested me. You know, I discover some okay, or just proportionately. You know, um, there's. But I think that's perfectly fine, by the way, hmm. because my outlines are really just kind of architectures. They're just like they're like an empty vessel, as though I built, as though imagine, as though I created the blueprint but then the writing of the chapter is filling all the rooms with the furniture mm. it's like i just have like the basic structure of where i think i'm going to go and then i start filling it all in the outline is just guiding me through the set of ideas and i often do discard parts of it i'm like oh that actually doesn't work i'm gonna actually have to do it in a different order mm. now that i'm actually writing it out but i just need like a scaffolding to lead me so that i know where i'm going Wait, do you have uh, trusted readers you you share drafts oh, with? You have to. You have to. You have to have people both inside and outside of your discipline to read it. Because I want people who don't know anything about comics, who don't know anything about American cultural studies, who know nothing about queer theory, to read my work and completely understand it. That's very important to me. I don't just want to speak to 10 people in my field. I want to... I have had... The beauty of The New Mutants was that it is a book that had a crossover appeal to so many people who are not academics, mm. who love this material. 
and we're transformed by it. And I, to this day, I get emails from random people who say, I read The New Mutants and I loved it so much. And I'm so glad that you made it so accessible. It's still a challenging book. It's still an academic book, but it is very accessible to a wide range of readers. The only way that that could be was that I needed to have trusted interlocutors, colleagues and friends who would read the material and say, here's where I, as somebody who knows nothing about this, don't understand what you're saying, right? Could you explain this better? And then I'd go do that in my revision. So you need to have people reading all the time in order to level up and to keep improving your work. That's like crucial for me. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm a big fan of the book. And I I um endorse all of those those judgment, the the complexity and the com- the clarity. Um you you manage yeah. That. Um you have published uh a, another book last year titled uh, Queer Forms, which I'm eager to to read. What are you at work on? So I'm, I'm kind of engaged in two projects, one that's public facing and one that's more academic. I'm gonna write another academic book, a third book called Literary Theory on Acid. And this is a book that's gonna be thinking about um, the, politi- the, the cultural politics of the psychedelic Renaissance. We have this extraordinary moment in which the science of psychedelics is making arguments for these drugs as potentially helping people deal with anxiety, depression, et cetera. Yet what we're not talking about is like, what are some of the cultural potentials of psychedelic thinking? Psychedelic experience opens out your mind to see and experience the world in new and surprising ways. Very few people in the humanities have been trying to enter the conversation with scientists to say, listen, the ways of thinking that psychedelics uh, um, elicit, they're already the things that we do in the humanities without drugs, right? Expanded consciousness, the um, thinking about diversity and complexity and our interconnection with non-human life. These are all things that we've been arguing that we should be doing in the humanities for years. So what I want is to have a really kind of a cultural studies approach to psychedelic thought. And what the book will argue in a very Ramsey Fawaz fashion is that American popular culture has been registering the possibilities of what psychedelic thinking can do for a long time. So the multiverse is a form of psychedelic thinking. The idea that multiple versions of us exist across time and space, right? Like the, the, the kind of resurgence of fantasy and enchantment in popular forms. So each chapter, is going to look at a different form of popular culture and its relationship to a different aspect of psychedelic experience, including like cosmic thinking, heightened affective and sensory experience. And what I want to do with that book is really to say the power of psychedelics is not going to ultimately lie in the drugs. Like the drugs can be amazing and transformative, but there's no magic bullet to human misery. Like we all know that in our hearts. But psychedelic thinking is a way of looking at the world that allows us to acknowledge difference and negotiate our differences more powerfully. So the book is really ultimately about the idea that like psychedelic thinking might be one different way of thinking about human diversity, like apprehending the complexity of human difference in a moment when our failure to do so is part of the main reason we're all in conflict. Um, And the second thing I'm going to do is start a podcast. I'm going to start my own podcast called Nerd from the Future. 
um, that is all about bringing the perspectives of professors and intellectuals into the everyday lives of ordinary view listeners. Like, I really kind of want to reclaim the idea that the professor offers a gift of ideas to people. And the kind of deep anti-intellectualism of our moment, when professors are seen as failing people both on the right and the left, you know, people on the right obviously are very, very um, critical of professors as spoiled, as selling a political agenda that they disagree with. And, and social justice warriors on the left tend to think of professors as disengaged from everyday life, as, you know, obsessed with jargon, the ivory tower. And my thing is to say, actually, nobody across the political spectrum could be able to have the ideas that they do if intellectuals had not also gifted them some of those ideas. Like, I want to kind of revitalize the idea that the professor is actually like a nerd that comes from a future version of yourself and gifts you with all of these new ways of seeing the world. And so I'm kind of excited to do something more public facing with that. That's really exciting. Can you, um, is it, uh, on on the horizon um oh it's on the, it's like next uh, next fall like i'm gonna start working on it in september mm -hmm. okay in in september and uh are you going to use spotify or or how can we i think i will use spotify i've been encouraged by a lot of people to do that and i bought the domain name so i i have a website but i haven't actually filled it up so like stay tuned in the next six months hopefully there will start to be kind of like content rolling out okay i'm super excited for both of those yeah products. Yeah, we'll keep our... Thank our, you. Um, th thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.